Hello, my lovely listeners. Welcome back to another episode of the Miss Independent Podcast. My apologies for skipping a week here. Had some issues with Amazon because I shipped over a new mic to where I'm staying in Florida. And for as much shit as people give Amazon, their customer service process is actually super streamlined. So if something arrives a day later and you ordered it through Prime, you can actually get a full refund for the item that you purchased and you get to keep the purchase. So make sure you chat in to Amazon customer service. They're usually super quick to respond. Basically what happened in my scenario was a neighbor stole my package and they happily refunded me, credited me back for the expedited shipping because I don't actually have Prime in the States. I, I do now. Side note, mental reminder, if you do have Prime and it's a free trial, make sure you cancel it. But based on this whole experience, I'm thinking we need to cut Bezos some slack. Like, the way that he treats his workers is, yes, definitely concerning, but there's been ample backlash on that in recent years, so I feel like we don't really need to dive into it. A bit of a life update for you guys. I've been living down in Florida for a bit. It's my second time this year staying for an extended period of time. No, I'm not a snowbird, which is a northerner who moves south for the winter, FYI. Not a snowbird because I love to ski. Absolutely love, love, love to ski, and I will not give up my cozy winters to sit on a beach. I'm sorry. Reason I'm down here is I work remote, which allows me to work from anywhere, and that's an incredible blessing. And I love being down here when it's like a transition season because it gets kind of like gross and mucky. November is ideally my favorite time to escape. Back in 2020, I lived in Costa Rica for a month, and that was like the best time that I had ever. So after that experience, I realized that when you're in a warmer climate, you get excited for the week and like you wake up on Monday if you're working a nine to five for example and you don't have Sunday scaries like Sunday scaries literally don't exist down here and I figured out how to replicate this for anyone that doesn't have the opportunity or the resources to come down and live somewhere in a warmer place for a couple months the hack that I want you all to look into is a hack that keeps people happy and it's a really really easy Thing to do you just need to take a vitamin b supplement so if you don't live in a sunny state or a sunny province <laughs> make sure you stock up last year i was taking liquid b12 and it was the first year that i didn't go through a seasonal depressive episode so i highly highly recommend you to do your own research and look into if vitamin b12 could help but it's something that helped me tremendously and that's why i'm sharing outside of that there's not really much else going on in my life other than wedding and bachelorette planning and That is definitely coming along. I have some really exciting updates that I'll share with you guys soon along with numbers and what that all looks like because I do want to be transparent and help you plan as well if anyone's going through a similar phase of life. But today's episode is going to be a bit of an extension of the last conversation that I had with Viller because it sparked something for me. And if you haven't listened to that one, it's an episode where I interview Villar Lika, who's a good friend of mine and a founder of Single Key, which actually recently acquired their competitor, Neighborly. So since posting this, they bought out their competitor, which is huge, huge. And it's a way for them to get into the US market. So if you haven't listened to that one, go back and do it. But today we're going to talk about the rental market and how crazy it is especially with interest rates rising and rising and real estate seemingly more and more unaffordable. So I want to dive into this topic 
and I want to help you understand if it makes more sense to buy or to rent, and in what market does it make sense over another. First, let's break down some limiting financial beliefs on real estate. Owning real estate does not mean you've quote-unquote made it and that your parents can be proud of you. Owning real estate is not like a rite of passage into adulthood. And renting by no means means that you're burning cash. Housing or shelter is a basic human right. And everybody's situation is going to be different or personal because it's personal finance after all. So today, I'm going to teach you how to evaluate whether it makes more sense to rent or to buy a place. And let me first break down some situations where renting makes more sense. Renting makes more sense if you want the freedom to move around, right? If you'd rather be able to live in multiple places in a year or just not have to worry about having something that you need to take care of and that's something that I'll get into because if you don't want to deal with home maintenance, renting makes a lot more sense. Like this is the biggest, biggest, biggest plus or pro for renting over buying. i tell you guys a story. So, you know, I have a triplex and recently I found mold in our basement and we just finished it over, over a year ago now. And we had to rip out the existing flooring, all the money that we spent for contractors to, you know, finish it in the first place. We had to essentially rip out the existing floors, cut into the drywall do a bunch of exterior work to try to figure out what's actually causing the moisture and then seal everything back up. So expenses like this come up all the time with homeownership and it's super upsetting because last year we actually spent $16,000 on waterproofing the sides and the back of the house so that this doesn't happen and yet shit happens. Situations like this are unforeseen which is why if you do want to buy you need to have an emergency fund. So that's a little bit on maintenance. If you don't want to have to deal with your housing prices increasing or fluctuating, renting might make more sense because you have a fixed living cost, at least for the year of your lease. And then after that, you go month to month. But your housing payments can't increase during your lease period because you've signed a contract. If you are in a position where you're working on your credit and working to build your credit score, renting might make more sense. Although they do a credit check, you can have somebody co-sign for you. The requirements to qualify for a mortgage, one of them is to have really good credit. So that is something that they're going to screen for. And if you're in the process of working on your credit, renting is going to make more sense. And the last piece, and this is something that I'm going to dive into detail, is on the down payment. So if you haven't saved enough for a down payment, we'll talk about how to quantify that and what those numbers look like. If you haven't saved enough, renting is going to obviously make more sense. But if you do want to focus on buying, you're going to want to build out a savings plan where you're contributing a portion of your monthly income to a savings account. Now let's talk about some situations where it makes more sense to buy. So if you have strong credit, number one, I mentioned that. If you're in good financial standing in general, like with your loan payments, cars, lines of credit, child support, things like that might make more sense to buy because you have that strong foundation. If you want to build equity, this is arguably one of the biggest perks of owning real estate is the fact that you get to build equity. But I'm going to share some really surprising things with you guys towards the end of this conversation that will definitely shock you when it comes to equity. The other big thing with buying is 
you ideally want to buy something if you're going to be in that area for a while. So you plan to stick around for at least a few years. And this is super important because when you're buying and selling, there's a lot of transaction fees. There's people involved, right? Real estate agents, there's the government involved with like land transfer taxes and all these different things are accounted for and it dips into the payout you get when you sell. So that's why I always say real estate is a long game. It's for the long term. Selling a stock you can do instantly. Selling a home, especially for anyone that's tried to do it in a down market, you know how tough this can be. So it is not instant and it is not liquid. But another situation you would want to buy a place in is if you want to customize your living space and like if design is really important to you. Most landlords aren't going to let you make major changes to their property. If you have a conversation with your landlord about potentially customizing the space, and you're doing it on your dime and you're enhancing their space, some landlords will definitely go for it. My aunt slash neighbor slash friend that you guys know, Elba, had customized and ripped out the flooring from her old place when she was renting um, a space in Toronto. She worked with the landlord and she enhanced the value of his property for when he would inevitably go and find a new renter. So she was adding value there and he went for it, but the cost was on her. And she is a designer by trade. So that's kind of where the inspiration came from. But unless you check all or majority of these boxes, like the customized living space maybe isn't, you know, a super hard criteria. If you check most of these boxes and you value stability, buying is going to make more sense at a first glance, right? We haven't even done any of the quanting yet. So let's get into that. It used to be thought that people should spend no more than 30% of their income on housing, but things have definitely changed a little bit since then. So to give you guys some perspective, in 1985 to 2003, renters paid between 20-25% to of their income on housing. In 2025, it rose to 26%. And now, if we look at how things have changed, if you earn, let's say, a $50,000 salary a year, that's considered middle class in Canada. FYI, the range to be considered middle class is anywhere between earning 35000 to just under 75000 to be considered middle class. And if you want it to be considered Canada's 1%, you need to earn an income of 245000 Just FYI. But let's say you earn an income of 50000 and you're renting a one-bedroom apartment. The average cost of a one-bedroom apartment in Toronto right now is $2,329. Per year, you're spending $27,960 on housing. And if you do the math, you don't have to. I'll do it for you. It's 56% of your yearly income. So that 30% rule is out the window. But rent-to-income ratio is something that we're going to look at in detail to rank housing affordability across cities. This environment that we're in is not your parents' housing market. Wages are relatively stagnant. We're in an inflationary environment. Things are looking a little grim. But you know what they say? There's always light at the end of the tunnel. And if you're thinking about how you can possibly afford to buy, let's do this exercise together so you can answer the question. Will I ever be able to afford a house? So typically what happens, 99% of the population gets to actually purchase a property by begging the bank for money. And to do that in Canada, if the property is 500000 or less, 
you have to put down at least 5% or as little as 25,000. If the property value is between 500,000 and just less than a million, you put down 5% on the first 500k, so 25k, and then 10% of the remaining value up to 999,000. So if it's above 1 million, you put down 20% or 200k. And in the US, things are a little bit different as usual. But in the U.S., you need to put down 20% if you want to avoid paying uh, privatized mortgage insurance or PMI, which typically costs 0.1% to 2% of your loan amount per year. In Canada, it's the same, where you do need to pay insurance if you put down less than 20%. But the minimum down payment in the U.S. is 3.5%. And if you are looking to buy, you need to have that down payment in cash. It can't be a stock portfolio or, you know, something that isn't liquid. It also, it's really important to have that money in cash because when you're making a transaction, a real estate transaction, and you're buying something, you need to be able to put down a deposit. So usually it's a check that you're writing and you present it to your real estate agent and they send it to the seller. But let's let's break down the down payment piece because this is super important. The average price of a condo that was sold in Toronto recently and this is looking at Q3 data, is 670000 Now let's look at the minimum household income you'd need to afford to buy that condo. And the minimum household income you'd need is 135000 or 675000 per person. Assuming that you're saving 10% of your monthly income, it's going to take you 58 months to save up for that down payment, which is about 4.4 years. So yes, these numbers suck, right? It's not pleasant to to look at and think about this and see the fact that unless you're making just under 70000 buying a place in Toronto is unaffordable or downright impossible. And that's if you're doing it as a pair. If you're doing it alone, you need to be making 135000 Is it impossible? No. It's going to be hard to get there. Sure. A lot of things in life are hard, but it is doable. It is doable. And I've actually linked a housing affordability study that was done by the National Bank of Canada, the NBC, in the show notes, and it ranks the minimum down payment that you'd need, how long it would actually take to save for in different cities. And my philosophy is this. If you live in a big city and you want to get on the property ladder, start with a condo. Start with something that's a little bit more affordable, maybe in a secondary market. Buying in Montreal, for example, is going to take you 33 months to save for a condo. Because the average price is just under 400k, and then the minimum down is 20k, so substantially more affordable than Toronto. Buying in Calgary would take you 16.8 months, with average condo prices at 250k. Vancouver, Toronto, Hamilton, and Victoria just happen to be the most expensive. I'm really, really not sure why Hamilton is included in there, but those are the numbers. Quebec City, Winnipeg, Ottawa, Edmonton, these are the least expensive cities to buy in. And I'm actually going to put a pin in this because I do want to dive into this a little bit more in detail. But TLDR here, there is nothing wrong with buying a condo first and using that as a stepping stone to then buy your first home. And that's, that's actually an awesome strategy. And I'm speaking from experience because that's what we did. And when I say we, the other party here is my fiance, Alex. He actually bought a pre-construction 
a condo that was not built yet before we started dating. He put down the down payment on it and I helped him pay the mortgage. And to be honest, I don't think that this is something that I've shared before, but my goal is to be transparent here. And I want to show you that it's possible. So after four years of living there, after four years, we saw some appreciation and then we sold it to buy our triplex. So that's where the down payment for our new place came from. Moral of the story here is you don't have to do this alone. A lot of people buy property with partners. But hey, everybody's goals are going to be different. Everybody has different, everybody has a different plan in life in general. Maybe you don't want to share finances with your romantic partner. In which case, if you've got a really close friend and you can get everything in writing and make sure you've crossed your, your T's and dotted your I's, I almost said cross your I's and dotted your T's, you, you can go in with a friend. It doesn't have to be a romantic partner. But if owning real estate is a goal of yours, that's essentially how you'd work backwards to figure out how much you would need to set aside. So saving 10% of your salary, that's conservative. If you're able to save more aggressively, you're going to get there faster. And the key to doing that is to learn how to live below your means. Next, I want to look at mortgages. Mortgages are capped at a multiple of your salary, which most people don't know. And the bank isn't just going to give you money that you can't afford to pay back. So they set up limits. How much do they cap you at? Great question. So there is something called the gross debt service ratio, the GDS. And they cap you at 32% of your gross household income. They also look at other debts you have. They look at if you have a car loan. They look at if you have credit card debt. They check all of these things, right? They check your credit score when you're applying for a mortgage. And they make sure that you can actually make your mortgage payments on time. When they factor in all of your debt, that's called the total debt service ratio or sometimes called TDS. And your total debt load can't be more than 44% of your gross income. So that includes your total monthly housing plus all your other debts. Even if your TDS is above 44%, you might still qualify for a mortgage. A higher TDS means that you're increasing the risk of taking on more debt that you can afford. So that's why banks and lenders will be wary of your ratios. It's not, the TDS isn't a hard, hard limit. But you definitely don't want to go out and sign up for a new car lease when you're in the middle of qualifying for a mortgage. I've heard some really funny stories from real estate agents. I mean, not funny, haha, but unfortunate situations where somebody's clients went out and bought a $90,000 Range Rover and leased it right before closing. And they couldn't close, obviously, because they couldn't get a mortgage and they didn't have a financing condition in place on the offer. So they were stuck with buying the place, but they couldn't get a mortgage and that becomes a very, very messy situation. Outside of just car loans, taking on any kind of debt while you're qualifying for mortgages is, is really something that you want to avoid. Closing out any open credit card balances, that is key. Looking at your car loans, making sure you're not overexerted there. Looking at lines of credit, student loans, and then child or spousal support, surprisingly, is also included, but these are just some examples. So what these ratios do, all they're trying to say is if you've got a higher GDS or TDS, it means you're at risk of taking on more debt than you can afford. So I want to walk you guys through a scenario here. Let's say 
you make $70,000. And you want to buy a place in Toronto that's $670,000, right? That's the average. Let's say you want to put the minimum down. Remember I said that it's 5% if it's below 500k, if it's between 500k and a mil, which it is in this case, it's 5% down on the first 500k and then 10% down on the remaining. So theoretically, the minimum down payment that you could put on a place like that would be 42,000. But unfortunately, you're not going to get approved. And the reason you're going to get denied is because you're asking for more money than theoretically you can pay back. So if you're asking for a $652,000 mortgage, assuming the place was 670, right? Your GDS is going to be 72%, which is way higher than that 32% limit. And then your total debt ratio is going to be 80%, which is almost double the 40% limit. Sometimes, oh, I forgot to mention that I factored in a little bit of credit card debt there. Sometimes you can get approved if you're a little bit above these ratios, but definitely not if you're double the limit. So if you're buying a place by yourself with that salary, it's impossible. If you're buying it with a partner, either a friend or a romantic partner, now it becomes way more feasible. Because let's say there are now two of you earning $70,000 a year, and both of you are going to qualify for this mortgage. Your household income is now $140,000. And at $140,000, to stay within the ratios, you would need to put down a minimum of 18%. At that point, I would really try to strive for 20% so that you avoid paying mortgage insurance. But 18% is just over $120,000 for a down payment, which means if you are paying 18% down, you're going to have to pay 2.8% on top of that for mortgage insurance because it's it's less than that 20%, like I said. But if you both contribute to that down payment, split it evenly at $60,000. I need you to stay with me here, guys. I know these numbers seem high, but... It's really important that you listen to this through to the end. The whole point of this isn't to be like, it's not affordable to buy and that's it. And it sucks and we're, we're not going to do anything about it. No, the whole point of this, outside of talking about the fact that there is a major issue with the market, I want to show you that it is still possible. It's just going to take a little bit more work and we need to get creative with how we get into the market if buying real estate is a goal of yours. It is not something that is right for everybody. And it's not something that everybody can do just because of the circumstances that they're in. But if we look at that scenario where you've got two people coming into this transaction and they're putting $120,000 for a down payment, they're going to fall within that that GDS ratio of 32%. They're going to fall within the TDS ratio of 40%, assuming they don't have car payments, loans, lines of credit, things like that. Another really, really key thing that I did touch on a little bit is the fact that you need to have good credit. And I'm not even going to dive into this because I'll do a whole episode on how to build credit. I feel like now, more so than ever, it's really prudent for people to look into. So assuming you have good credit, assuming all of that, bank is going to give you a mortgage of just under 550000 So now if we dive into the scenario a little bit more in detail, a $550,000 mortgage, your total monthly housing costs are going to be for your mortgage. So let's say $3,300 just over. $150 is your heating roughly, let's say, and then $200 a month we'll say is your property tax. I'm not factoring in maintenance fees because those are going to vary depending on how old the building is, things like that. But your total monthly housing costs roughly are going to be 
just over $3,700, so $3,715. And I'm going to link a mortgage qualifying calculator in the show notes so that you can run some numbers yourself based on your salary. Make sure you go in and check that out. If you divide that into, it's roughly $1,900 per person, roughly. So you can use that as a benchmark. If it makes more sense to rent for the two of you, if it's cheaper than that, then renting is more affordable. But we're going to dive into some numbers in a bit and how to calculate that specifically. Another thing that people miss here is when we talk about mortgage interest. So people say renting is throwing away money, but we haven't even talked about interest yet. So let's break down that mortgage payment. That $3,365 mortgage payment that you're paying every month, when you take out a mortgage, it's either fixed or variable. Variable meaning it changes based on what the market rate is. And fixed meaning you lock in that rate for either three or five years. There's more complexities on this. If you're curious, I have an episode I recorded with Gina Judge, who's a mortgage broker and highly knowledgeable on the topic. If you're curious, go check that out. But essentially, when you take out a mortgage, only part of your payment goes towards actually paying down the principal, which is the amount that pays down your outstanding loan amount. Part of it goes towards the interest. And there's actually four components total. The other two are taxes and insurance. But interest is a big one. So when people say renting is throwing away money, they're not considering the fact that interest is an expense. And it's a pretty significant one with the way that the rates are right now. Back in 2020 or 2021, when the economy slowed down a little bit, there was a lot of cheap debt, meaning you can get a mortgage for 1.5%, 2%. Now it's closer to 5.5%. So that is something to consider. Interest is an expense when you buy. Also on the mortgage side and building equity. The argument is that when you buy, you're building equity basically paying down that that principal loan, like we talked about. But when it comes down to a mortgage, the reality is that the average person is going to move at least three times in their lifetime. So it's highly, highly unlikely that the first place you buy is going to be your forever home. Even if it appreciates, your gains aren't always going to be monetized. Because here's the catch-22. As soon as you sell a place, you buy a larger property. You sell that place, you buy a larger property, right? We're always trying to keep up with the Joneses. So climbing this proverbial property ladder, the only time you actually materialize the gains are when you downsize. That is food for thought. Okay, I feel like I covered a lot here. Like we looked at down payments, we looked at mortgage rates, we looked at scenarios where on paper it makes more sense to buy. And based on all that info, If you can buy, think about buying something that's going to generate income for you first so that you can set yourself up before you actually start thinking about buying your dream home. You can rent out your property or at least part of it on Airbnb, and that's going to help you offset your mortgage payments. And then the smart thing to do, and of course I'm going to say this, would be to invest that money or that extra income that you have coming in. You know what, it really it really actually upsets me how if we think about society and the way that society thinks about homeownership is they view it as like some sort of status symbol or declaration to the world that you've entered adulthood. I hate that they see it this way rather than seeing it clearly as a personal choice. And sure, there's a lot of benefits to owning a property, cash flow being one of the biggest ones. But if you're priced out of the market and you're choosing to rent, 
please don't be so hard on yourself. There's a lot of advantages to renting as well. That was my little motivational speech. Now I do want to get back to some quanting. So I want to show you how, how to calculate if a market is potentially overvalued, where it makes more sense to rent. And the best thing to do is to look at the purchase price, the average purchase price versus the rental price. And of course, there's another ratio for this. It's called the price to rent ratio. It's actually a very, very simple calculation. You take the price of the property that you're thinking of buying, assuming that you can afford the down payment, you've got the income to match. But hypothetically, you take the price of the property that you're thinking of buying. Let's use that same 670000 average Toronto condo for reference. It's a one bedroom. And the average price to rent a one-bedroom in Toronto is $23.30. Yearly, if we look at that, it's $27,960. So we take the total price, $670,000, and then we divide it by $27,960. We get $23.9, let's say $24, to make things simple. And you can apply this rule to any, any market that you're in. If the number that you get is between 1 and 15, it's better to buy than rent in that market. If the number that you get is between 16 and 20, it's a tougher call. Typically, it's better to rent than to buy, unless it's an area where you think there will be a lot of appreciation in the near term. And this is just averages for one bedroom that I'm using, but in some cases, a three-bedroom apartment might rent for substantially more in one market than another, even though the price to buy may not change as much between like a two-bedroom and a three-bedroom place. Reason being supply and demand, right? Maybe there are very, very few condos in a market that are three-bedroom. So the price to buy isn't that high because for some reason people haven't figured that out, but the price to rent, whew, skyrocket. If the number is between 16 and 20, it's a tougher call. Typically, it's better to rent than to buy, unless it's an area where you're going to see a lot of appreciation in the near term. If it's over 21, renting might be a better option. So for Toronto, we're at 24, which tells us that the Toronto condo market is overvalued. Shocker. <laughs> but hey, the price is the price. If there's demand for it at that price and demand keeps rising because there is limited supply, even if it's overvalued, it's likely going to stay overvalued for a little while longer. We just don't know when the prices are going to drop. And likely there's going to be some sort of external factor that influences this, like what we're seeing right now with supply. Development costs for new builds, or just in general, development costs have skyrocketed with inflation, with labor costs. So developers, a lot of them are going bankrupt. A lot of them are holding off on projects. So take this with a grain of salt. And like any other ratio, know that this is just a rule of thumb. It's only, it's just one other factor that you can use to evaluate the decision if renting or buying makes more sense for you. There's also a lot of non-financial benefits of renting, like having the mobility and freedom to choose where you live. Having the freedom to not have to stress about repairs and mold and all of these issues and not having to worry about property tax increases. Another really awesome thing is if you are living in a new city, you can rent for a little while so you get a chance to explore, get a lay of the land and understand the area and figure out where exactly you want to settle. 
big thing too is like reason why people buy is they hope that 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 place is going to appreciate in value but appreciation is not guaranteed think about what happened recently where there was a slight correction and home values dipped in some markets I think it's still a good goal to want to own real estate. It's still doable, especially in certain markets. But it may not be what's best for everybody. And I want everyone to understand this. Unless it makes financial sense for you, buying may not be worth it. If appreciation in an area or home price growth outpaces the rental price market or the rental price growth in the market then it makes more sense to rent because you're actually saving money on rent or you're saving money by renting. But if it's the opposite, then it makes more sense to buy. All in all, it's going to be a personal decision. Like I said, personal finance is personal. But real estate is still an awesome tool for building wealth when you're prepared for all the costs that come with it. So if you're planning to buy, let's say, a rental property, Something that Villa and I talked about is the fact that being a landlord is a pretty difficult job. And your primary residence is actually not an investment. So when you're looking at net worth calculations, your primary residence isn't even counted towards that. Let me repeat, the value of your home or your primary property does not count towards net worth calculations. Keep that in mind. There's also the concept of opportunity costs, and this is a big one. This is a really big one. So if you are looking to buy that $670,000 condo, you've got a partner, you're both all in, and you're going to save $120,000 combined or $60,000 each for that down payment, that's money that you're keeping in savings, ideally, because you don't want it to be affected by market fluctuations. But here's a random thought. What if you weren't going to put that money in real estate, but instead put that $120,000 into the stock market. Let me round down to $100,000, okay? Like $120,000 is a lot to strive for. So let's say for easy math, you put $100,000 into the stock market. Suddenly it's not so black and white, eh? And on an aggregate, the S&Ps had larger returns than the housing market. If five years ago, you put that $100,000 into the S&P, it would be worth just under $150,000 today. And appreciation on housing, like we said, isn't always guaranteed. Neither are stock market returns. So please do your own research when comparing markets. All of this is just food for thought. Whether renting or buying makes more sense for you is something that you need to evaluate. You've got a toolkit now for how to make that decision, for how to understand which markets are overvalued, for understanding how much you would need to save to get to a down payment. Now you know what mortgage um, qualifications look like, and now you can weigh the pros and cons of buying versus renting yourself. So I hope you learned something new in this episode, and if you did, please share it with somebody who might benefit from this information. And... If you enjoyed this episode, it would mean the world to me if you left me a review either on Spotify or on Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen. That's all for me this week. It was an absolute pleasure, as always. Ciao for now.